We are in Matthew chapter 10 again. Uh, This is not your typical Easter resurrection passage. Uh, I know many, uh, many churches this morning will be focused just on those passages concerning Jesus' resurrection. But I think this passage this morning is particularly important in light of the resurrection. Uh, we, at the end of chapter 9, uh, Jesus was looking out over the people and he, he told the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers. And then the very next thing he does is he says, congratulations, you're the laborers. And he sends them out with a mission to preach the gospel. And before they leave, in verse 16, he's, <laughs> he's going to tell them, the other side of the story. He's given them the commission. He's given them the apostolic authority. You're going out in my authority with with power that I have granted to heal the sick and cast out demons and so on and so forth. And if somebody doesn't accept you, then just leave them alone and walk away. And then we hit verse 16. And uh, this is something... Well, this is something really, really important. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand as we normally do for the reading of the Word this morning. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Let's pray. Father, as, as joyful as we are at the, at the resurrection, at the remembrance of the empty tomb, we also need this sober reminder that the call to go out is also a call to suffer persecution. It is a call to sacrifice our comfort, to sacrifice our peace, sometimes to sacrifice our lives for the sake of the gospel. Father, as we read this word this morning, let us, let us be encouraged. As Jesus said, the one who endures will be saved. We thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. This warning from Jesus is really the first indication of many that the life of a follower is not going to be easy. Uh, In in fact, it's full of danger. Um, We know, I mean, we're 10 10 chapters into uh, Matthew's gospel, and we know that persecution is started. Because you already have the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, sending their 
uh, emissaries to Jesus' disciples to ask the question, how come you don't follow all the same traditions that we follow? And then when Jesus casts out a demon from somebody, the scribes and the Pharisees, they start their yakking, and he casts out demons by the power of Satan. So we know that there's opposition starting up here. But this is just the very, very, very tip of the iceberg. What Jesus is warning these new apostles about is that they are going to be in a position where they are just as defenseless as a sheep would be in a pack of wolves. A single sheep, now, you know, I've, I watched the videos on Facebook, and, and I, I, I grew up on a farm, but we didn't have sheep. We had cows. But sheep are not totally defenseless. They can still kick, and they can still, they got some beef behind those legs. They can still butt you pretty hard. But if you've got a pack of wolves attacking a sheep, what is that sheep going to be able to do? Nothing. Nothing but get away if possible. And that's kind of the point of what Jesus is making here. If you think about the history of the church, out of all of the characteristics of the church from the first century on, persecution is just about the most consistent mark of the church that we have in history. Everywhere you turn from the first century till now, persecution marks the church. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go out to uh, the internet. If you have access, go out and do a little search on the voice of the martyrs and see what's going on in Iran and in China and in Pakistan and in India. And I can keep going around the world. And, and then you have here in the United States. Now, <laughs> y'all ain't going to like this. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Okay? And I am not praying that God sends persecution because I personally am not looking forward to it. But what we go through here in the U.S. is not persecution. Okay? We don't have to worry about somebody feeding us to lions. We don't have to worry about somebody sentencing us to death for meeting this morning. We don't have to worry about the police showing up with machine guns, shooting us down because we're singing about Jesus. We don't have to do that. In China, they can't say that. In China, there are Christians who have a page of the Bible. A page. Sometimes not even a full page. And that is their scripture. That's all they've got. If they were to have a full Bible they would probably be sentenced to prison and death. Part of the reason that we have things so easy is because we have this constitution that was written back in 1774, 5, 6, 7, before it was ratified, right? And we have the Bill of Rights that says we have the freedom to assemble. We have the freedom to practice whatever religion or no religion we want. Well, what that's done is it's made Christianity safe. It's the only place in the world where Christianity is safe. As a result, we have seen a popularization of Christianity. We have TV shows. We have Touched by an Angel. We have, high, uh, uh, what was the one, Michael? Highway to Heaven? Okay, I couldn't remember. We have Little House on the Prairie where everybody in the community comes together. And I know I'm picking on like mom's favorite show when I was a kid. Um, I know because we watched it all the time. We have 
the whole community came together. They went to the, I mean, the school was the church. The church was the school. Because there was like 42 people in town. What else was there to do on Sunday? Yes. Okay. So we have this, this, it's part of culture. It's part of Americana. And what that, what that does is it presents a picture of a toothless Christianity. And then we have preachers. And, and I'm going to probably name some people, and if you listen to these people and you think I'm being unfair, please come talk to me later. We'll talk. Um, but we have people like Joel Osteen and even Joyce Meyer who do not preach the gospel. You listen to them closely, they never talk about sin. They never talk about repentance. They never talk about the need for a Savior. They talk about, turn yourself around. God wants you to be successful. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. I'm waiting. (laughs) That's not what Scripture says. But then they tend not to use it. So what we have here is this culture of a safe Christianity a culture of a Christianity that's not going to cause offense, a Christianity that loses Christ, so that we water the gospel message down to make it more palatable. We have megachurches, the only place in the world where we have megachurches is in the United States and South Korea. The world's largest megachurch is in South Korea. It's ginormous. Uh, they boast like millions of members. It's It's unbelievable, but... It's because of our influence in South Korea. I've been there. Okay? We have megachurches. How do we get megachurches? Because we preach a popular Christianity. We preach a safe Christianity. We preach a Christianity that does not bring offense. We preach a Christianity, and there's also anonymity in numbers. I am personally very, very, very happy with a small congregation because I know all of you. And if somebody's missing... I notice if this place was packed out. Now, I've been told when I first got here that this sanctuary could hold 400 people. If there were 400 people in here and one person was missing, who's going to know? Maybe the person who normally sits to their left and their right, because we are Baptists and that would be different, right? It's one of them Baptist distinctives. Change is bad. So we have this palatable Christianity and this anonymity that we have going on in these big churches. So, of course the world isn't going to persecute us. Why persecute something that doesn't look all that different from everything else out there, right? The message that Jesus sent his apostles out with was about as unwatered down as you could get. I mean, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't picking on the scribes and the Pharisees because they were unrighteous. These are the same groups of people that Jesus commended. He said, you tithe on the herbs in your garden, and well you should. But you miss the weightier things of the law for the small things of the law. 
And I know when I prayed for the offering this morning, we are no longer bound to the law of the tithe. We don't live in a theocracy. We don't have the tithe tax, which is what the tithe was, to feed the poor and the widows and the orphans and so on and so forth. We give offerings, right? But how many people would Jesus, if Jesus walked in here today, how many people would he say, you tithe the herbs in your garden, but you miss the weightier things of the law? How many of us tithe the herbs in our garden? And I'm not talking about honest-to-goodness herbs, because Peggy would probably go nuts if there was like dillweed and oregano in the offering plate. But how many give a tithe, a tenth of anything? Do we give that much? And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, they paid attention to the little things in the law, but they missed the big things like compassion and mercy, right? So, so I can see Jesus, you guys, you guys got compassion and mercy nailed. But what about the little things? So that's a church that's safe. Here in, in chapter 10, this is not safe. This is blunt. This is Jesus telling his disciples, you're going to go out. And they're going to hate you. You're going to go out and they're going to drag you before a court and have you flogged. How many of you know what a flogging is? That's a lashing with a whip. Yeah. That's not pleasant. This is why Jesus told them to be wise as serpents. Now, This is almost startling if you consider where Jesus gets this imagery from. He says, be wise as serpents. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. And what is the opening line of Genesis chapter (laughs) 3? But the serpent was more crafty, more cunning, more subtle, more shrewd. Pick your translation. They're all the same word. Than the other animals. The serpent was more... Cunning and shrewd and crafty and subtle. In other words, the serpent was not a dumb animal like a sheep. Okay, remember we've talked about a sheep will stand there and eat itself into the rocks. The serpent was a crafty animal. The serpent was, this is a picture of of Satan being ready to lay the snares and traps for mankind when he appeared on the scene. Remember his question that he asked Eve. Did God really say you can't have any food? No. No, he didn't say that. He said we could have all the food we wanted, just not from that tree over there. See, he set a trap. He made the woman question God's goodness. Jesus is telling the disciples he doesn't want them to be dumb like sheep. They're defenseless like sheep. But he wants them to be wise. He wants them to be prepared. He wants them to be nimble in their thought processes. He wants them to be ready when the attacks come. So that when the attack comes, they can get out of harm's way. But he also said, be innocent as doves. What is a dove? How many of y'all have seen doves? Everybody's seen doves, right? And you've probably seen their bigger cousin, pigeons. Right? Or flying rats, depending on how you look at it. Have you ever seen a dove attack? 
What does a dove do when it's scared? It flies away, right? I mean, we even had, we had a morning dove nesting in one of our flower pots hanging on the back porch. Which, which herbs was that that the bird nested in? She had a pot full of thyme growing, and the, the dove nested in the, the pot with the thyme. Twice. <laughs> it didn't attack us at all. It didn't, I mean, we could go out on the back porch. Here is a bird on its nest. I could walk up and look in the flower pot. And there's the dove. Hey. There was no assault. There was no attack. There was no defense. There was nothing. Dove, the the dove is a sign of peace. It's a symbol of peacefulness. So while the apostles are supposed to be prepared to face the attack of the wolves, they're not to respond in kind. Now what does a dove do when it's startled or scared? I learned this when I was about 16 years old, walking through a cornfield with that guy and a couple of shotguns. And that dove came out of the cornfield. They fly, and they fly fast. That's the response that Jesus is telling the disciples. When the attack comes, get out. Just leave. That's not too different from what he said over here uh, in, in the passage we looked at last week. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. If someone doesn't receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. If they don't accept what you have to say, leave. Notice Jesus does not tell his disciples, never, ever, 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 ever does he tell us that we're going to win somebody to Christ by standing toe-to-toe and arguing with them. That don't work. As a matter of fact, it's going to fail. The, the dove, the, the, the reaction of the dove is to leave. Not to speak the poison of hatred and bitterness and self-centeredness. Not to get defensive and bow up. I mean, maybe it's just a guy thing, right? But when we try to share an idea with somebody and they reject it, and we are convinced of that idea, what do we do? Come on, guys, I know I'm not alone in this. When we share an idea with somebody, okay, for all you guys that are married, honesty moment, okay, you know your way is right, loading the dishwasher or whatever it happens to be, right? And your wife has a different idea. How do we respond? If you don't agree with me here, you're lying to yourself because our pride steps in and we do this whole justification. Can't you see why I'm right? We can't afford to do that with the gospel. The apostles, these guys are the ones who are going to walk with Jesus for three years. These are the men who are going to be sequestered in the upper room after his death, after his resurrection, terrified because of the Roman authorities when Jesus is just going to pop up in the middle of the room. These are the guys who write the New Testament. And Jesus says, if they don't accept your words, leave. When the attack starts to come, leave. Walk away. 
That's not our way. That's not what humanity does. When I walk away, I'm going to walk away after pouring five gallons of gas, and I'm going to throw a match on the way out, right? (laughs) Fine. Burn then. That's not what Jesus says. The message that we're supposed to carry is the message of good news. Deliverance from the curse of sin, restored fellowship with God through faith in Christ. If somebody rejects it, step away. Let them be. It's not your job to save them. Who here has the power to save somebody else? None of us do. Now, Jesus, <laughs> he sends them out to a bunch of people who are not going to choose God on their own. How do I know this? Because no man will choose God on their own. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. He again told Nicodemus again in chapter 3. He said, no man can come to the Father. No man can. Okay, that little grammar lesson from elementary school. Nobody has the ability unless God draws them. And that word for draw is the same word that is used in Scripture to talk about pulling water from a well. Okay? So this isn't, this isn't God gently calling. This is God pulling. Okay? The opponents of the gospel are not going to accept the gospel on their own. They're going to drag them into the synagogue and have them flogged for blasphemy, for teaching something different than Yahweh. These opponents of the gospel are going to seek to eradicate the message by whatever means necessary, even up to killing Christ. Now, There's a statement in here that I almost missed when I was studying. Verse 18, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. What is that significance there? Palestine was an occupied territory. Who ruled Palestine? Rome, the Gentiles. The governors, the kings were Gentiles. You know, with the exception of Herod, who was a Jew who was appointed by the Romans, and he was only barely Jewish, right? Um, In order for a person to be convicted and imprisoned or executed, it had to be by the government authorities. The religious authorities only could do one thing to you. They could have you flogged for blasphemy. So even when they took Stephen outside the town and they stoned him to death, that was illegal. And the Sanhedrin could well have been executed for doing that. That was murder. All they could do was flog. But if they wanted wanted somebody put to death, they had to take them before the civil authorities, before the governor, before the king, before the Gentiles. Just like they did Paul. Right? Just like they did Jesus when they took him in front of Pilate. Jesus was warning them that this persecution could be all the way up to death. Not just a minor inconvenience. Not just a prohibition against saying Merry Christmas. Not just 
a prohibition against putting a nativity set up in the uh, city hall front yard or the, the park downtown. This wasn't about inconvenience. This was persecution unto death. But even then, no matter the scope of the persecution, he tells them, don't be anxious about what you're going to answer. Don't be anxious about what you're going to respond because the answer will be given by the Holy Spirit. That's another one of those messages lost on the Western world. What is the biggest reason we give for the sin of silence, for not sharing the gospel with people? I'm afraid. I'm afraid they're going to reject me. I'm afraid I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to say the wrong thing. You know why you're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing? Because you don't trust that God's going to give you the right thing to say. And I'm guilty too. I've done it too. The gospel is a message that's going to stir up heated divisions. Family members will turn on one another. Families will be torn apart. Jobs will be lost. Friendships dissolved. All for the sake of the gospel. If you think about it for a very short period of time, you will probably be able to come up with a time where you have had a heated exchange with somebody in your family or a close friend or a work associate just because of your faith. If you don't believe me, whether you believe in social media or not, go set yourself up a Facebook account and post a statement about your faith. It's like flies to a, car, a, a carcass that, that just, it's drawn to it. Jesus' command for his disciples is to endure and to move on. Don't stay for the battle. Don't make a martyr of yourself for the cause. Don't lower yourself to the argument. Move on to find somebody who will accept the gospel message. We need to understand this for our time. We need to be as wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. We need to rely on God to give us the message when we go to the lost. As he gives us the opportunity, he's going to equip us to speak. We need to be discerning. There are some people who we need not speak the gospel to at all. And there are some times you can tell, but don't base it on external appearances. Because it may not be that guy on the motorcycle with all the tattoos. It might not be that waitress at the restaurant who's got more piercings and and metal in her face than, than my tackle box has. They may be ripe to hear the gospel message. It might be the soccer mom who shows up at the PTA, PTO, PT, whatever, the, the parent-teacher association things. I don't know, homeschooler, don't deal with them. It might be the clean-cut soccer mom that you don't need to share the gospel with because of the way she responds. We need to be discerning. We need to move on when the message isn't received. And when it is received, then we have to, here's the even harder part, then we have to disciple them. Okay? This is the part that the church has been absolutely, positively horrendous at for the last, I don't know, at least 200 years of the church in the United States. Because here's what we do. If we share the gospel, if they pray a prayer of acceptance of Christ, the next thing that we do is, that's awesome. Now, we have a church that meets every Sunday at such and such a time. You need to come. I'll come pick you up. 
Once we get them through those doors, what's the next thing we do? Yon, yon. Good luck. That's horrible. You're taking an infant and leaving them on their own. We need to trust that if God equipped us to share the gospel with somebody, He's going to equip us to lead them and to help them to grow individually. Remember the message of the, the Great Commission is, go therefore and make disciples, not converts. And by the way, making disciples does not mean inviting them to church. I'm not telling you to quit inviting people to church. I'm telling you to don't invite them to church in the hopes that I'm going to be the one that shares the gospel with them. As a pastor, that's not my calling. As a Christian, it's my calling. As a pastor, I'm here to equip the saints to do the discipling. Huh, what a novel idea. We need to trust in the hand of the good shepherd that he will take care of his sheep. Now, I'm going to tie all of that to the resurrection here. How can we have this kind of faith? How can we have this kind of hope? Because of the resurrection of Christ. Do you realize that the resurrection was not just a historical event that we can point at and say, see, look, it happened. Because the next words out of somebody's mouth should be, so what? It happened. Who cares? It happened. Then what? The resurrection of Christ proved the message of Christ. It proved the life of Christ. It proved the sacrifice of Christ. Do you get that? If it were not for the resurrection, if Jesus had died and stayed in the grave, then his whole message was pointless. If he had died and stayed in the grave, everything that he taught, everything that he did, every miracle he performed was pointless. Because his death would not have been counted as sufficient. It's his resurrection that seals our salvation. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then we are the most to be pitied because our faith is worthless. The persecution they were about to go into was pointless if it weren't for the resurrection. Our gathering here is futile if it weren't for the resurrection. The purpose of the church would not exist were it not for the resurrection. So because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have hope. We have a place to put our faith. We have a Savior in whom we can trust. That's the point of the resurrection. All of the miracles that Jesus performed, I've told you guys before, were the equivalent of God's signature. I am God and I approve this message. Right? Just like those TV commercials during political season, which apparently is 365 days a year. Every year. Okay? Every miracle Jesus performed was God's signature on the message Jesus was teaching. And the resurrection 
was the ultimate stamp of approval. It goes to show that Jesus' death wasn't just sufficient to set us all back at ground zero, but it was sufficient for all of us who are in Christ to be declared righteous. And not only declared righteous, but Jesus still retains his righteousness. He had an overabundance. He didn't take on our sin and, and, and stay in the grave because of it. He had enough righteousness that he still wasn't worthy of death. That's big news, 